Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Evolving ABA with me. I'm Dr. Nasia Serencioni Ulazi. And boy, oh boy, do I have a treat, a very special treat for you today. I am here with Dr. Polly Gavoni and Dr. Drew Carter. Okay. First, you know, I could I could say so many wonderful things about these gentlemen. Um, I've come to know them over the, the past few years as people who are really standing for change and education in our industry. And I just love what they have to say. And today I'm going to get to share that with you. So I want them both to have an opportunity to introduce themselves. I'll start with you, Holly. Can you just tell us a little bit about who you are? Oh, well, um, I'm Polly. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in the field for a minute. Uh, since about 2003, I actually started in social work and um, stumbled across the, the science of human behavior. And uh, right around then, uh, in 2002, uh, or, and then got certified uh, outside of actually university and went on to work in schools and made a whole bunch of mistakes there and realized that, man, how am I going to change any of the students' behavior when it looks like we need to like really help the staff? Because they don't really seem to have the knowledge and skills to be successful. They're trying. They're really good people. They were just like really struggling. And then realizing that I'm like, well, wait, if we're going to change their behavior, the faculty and staff's behavior, we really need to look at the school leaders. And so we got to change it. Well, wait a second. Now we got to go up the chain again to district leaders. And then I stumbled across organizational behavior management. And that's where I've kind of hung my hat in that area. And during that time, I also, uh, started taking a look at my own approaches to uh, training fighters. I'm a professional mixed martial arts coach and boxing coach. And uh, started looking at that through a scientific lens, all, all the practical application of the science and uh, helping fighters perform. And in both cases, I've had, I've had good success with fighters, world champions uh, and helped to turn around failing schools that were in high poverty. Uh, but it's certainly not me. It's the, the science of human behavior and the practical application of it. And I've done it with like a, a spoonful of it, a spoonful of this, a cup full of that. And the science is so powerful, man. And I love, I love helping people with it. And I really love inspiring and, and disseminating it. So it, it's my passion. And, uh, you know, right now I'm, I'm the director at Professional Crisis Management Association. I love it because we actually, you know, put one of the things that we sell is training solutions, but it's all grounded in the science of human behavior. So I'm like constantly in my living in my passion, right? And disseminating this stuff. So it's a great thing. Awesome. I will tell you, Dr. Polly Gavoni, your enthusiasm for behavior analysis, the science of human behavior is palpable. I so appreciate who you are in this field and, and so happy to have you here today to share. So thank you. Thank you. And Mr. Drew Carter, please share with folks who you are. Um, hi, everybody. I'm Drew Carter. Um, I started out in this field, specifically adult residential services in 1998. Um, started out as a direct support professional, uh, found I had a passion for the science of human behavior. I saw really good results. Um, and I basically worked, <laughs> I, 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 I've done pretty much everything you can do in residential services, up to and including a director of a not-for-profit. I still sit on the board of um, adult residential day programs, uh, schools. I'm still highly involved in um, residential services. So yeah, it's been about um, 25 years that I've been been dealing with adult residential services. Wow. Um, much like much like Polly, 
Um, I'm really, my passion there is uh, training of staff, uh, making sure that staff have the skills to support the people who can be very challenging sometimes that they're going to be serving. Um, that That is my passion and what I kind of carved a niche out for myself in this field over the past 25 years. Awesome. Drew's oh a super goodness. good dude. Eh. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Without a doubt. So, okay, y'all, let's get into it. Let me give folks a little bit of context for this conversation. So myself, and, and many people know, I spent a good portion of my career working with children. And probably halfway through, I switched up and went into the adult services field. Um, I actually started there. Like you, Drew, I, I started my uh right out of high school life as a DSP at 18 years old, direct service professional, and made my way back um, as a behavior analyst mid-career. Um, boy, oh boy, what a world that is. <laughs> you know, it really is. So the lesson that I learned is my takeaway from making that switch is we spend most of our lives as human beings as an adult, you know, that's where we that's where we spend most of our life. However, within the field of um, within the field of behavior analysis, the focus is largely supporting children and children with autism. So. When I look at the adult services system in Illinois, there are so many gaps and there's so much work to be done in reprioritizing how we serve our humans who are over the age of 21. And really, that's what this conversation is about today. It really is intended to raise awareness around some of the challenges that Folks are experiencing in the adult service system, right? We love our babies. We love them. But I think if we really turn our attention on what's happening in the adult world, we can better prepare our families, the children that we serve to enter in that adult space and thrive and really maximize the supports that may be available depending on what state you're in. So I really I really want to start there. I want to make sure we touch on the staffing issues. I want to touch on some of the behavioral issues that show up in adult services. And I want to talk about, because people don't know this, you know, depending on um, an individual's behaviors that may impact their ability to enter into community living yep. as an adult. Um, so... I don't know where where do we start drew i'll start oh. with you <laughs> where do there's we start so, there's so much to unpack there you know in your experience what do you see is some of the the bigger challenges in the adult service system oh well one of the biggest ones is underfunding uh for medicaid waiver um i think in florida right now there are over 20,000 people on the wait list. I think that's according to USF study. I can't remember what the place is called. 20,000? 20,000, um, 20, yeah. It's the Florida Center for Inclusive Communities at uh, USF. They do um, a wait list campaign. Um, I think 
21 and over, I think 13,000 people and 21 and under is around 9,000 people. So we're looking around 22,000 people right now that are waiting for services. They might be on that wait list for 10 years. Um, they might start on the wait list at 11 and by the time they get it, they're 22 years old. Um, so funding is a big issue. Now, there's can, I, can, I, can I insert something right there, Drew? Sure. That's powerful. So I, when I talked to you, uh, Paul, Polly, on your podcast, I talked about thinking forward. You just said something very powerful, Drew. They might end up on that wait list. They might start at 11 years old and not end up getting services from the waiver until they're 22. So yeah. I just want to insert this. That's if they have parents who have the foresight Correct. to get them on that list mm -hmm. at, you know, when, when their children, most families don't, yeah. don't. And it is in, in my experience in the over 20 years of working in that system, what I have seen is people in their thirties and their forties and their fifties with elderly parents who may be ill or pass. And then we're looking to trying to get on the waiver when it's an emergency. Right. Just wanted yeah. to insert that in there. Yeah. It's, it's um, heartbreaking. Sometimes a lot of the people that I'd worked with, it just <laughs> one of my very few first people that I worked with is that exact same situation. Uh, mother was getting elderly. He was a 40 year old man who never received services. And by the time they, they tried to get services for this this gentleman, um, there was a long learning history there that was very difficult to break down and actually get him some effective treatment. Um, and it, it was heartbreaking to watch the mom watch her son go through all this. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's 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 tough. It really tough. is. And, and you know what I found is, and I'm finding this even in my own life, I have a 23-year-old son. You know, no matter how old our children get, they're always our children. There's mm. always concern. And I have had the honor, pleasure, privilege to watch, to watch um, guardians take this journey with their older adult children. So I have seen guardians and work with guardians in their 80s who have no less of a commitment to their children than when they were, you know, 10, 11, 12 yeah. years old. It's just, again, the resources may not always be there. The yeah. time and most of all, you know, as parents get older, the energy, the energy <laughs> is not there. I say do what is difficult when it is easy. So, again, that forward thinking, if we can just disseminate information around how important it is to really think forward for our our children that's such a hard thing to do in general because we know like you know laws of behavior we tend to do things that are going to be more immediately gratifying uh you know so it'd be man if we could grease that wheel for people and, and bring bring the future and make it more salient to now so people can experience it i don't even know what that would be you know i don't know if there was things that are checklist and like a road I don't map. know, you know, I like, mean, but even that's still like, you know, I mean, at least it's a path of some kind. Uh, but even that's like, all right, check the box off of that, you know, because you don't you wait like, well, it's going to be better tomorrow. You know, something will change along the time and nothing changes, you know, and then you, the people find themselves like it's why people don't put money in retirement, you know, and they don't think about a pension. And, and all of a sudden, like it hits you and there you are. So, uh, you know, I think, of course, bringing awareness is an important piece a first piece of the puzzle. Uh, yes. But it's like, man, how can we equip people with those tools? And I suppose it might be like one approach to it might be 
and to, you know, this is awareness, but maybe bringing awareness at a very young age, you know, and uh, talking about a savings and uh, making more partner. And again, you know, making that future salient for the young kids. And it's all, it's on all of our, uh, our, our tongues and our, and our, our talks with them. So I don't know. It's a, it's a big challenge. It absolutely is. And I'm reflecting back on the conversation you and I had Polly about, you know, the past and the map meetings and helping families look at that North Star. Because what you're speaking to is so true. It is so scary, particularly if you have a child with a disability to look at the future. But there are tools out there that really help us really look, look at the future in partnership with families in a very compassionate way. So that's a beautiful point that you have brought up. And I'm curious. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I That's all right. And I went. I just before you had that, you had a, the pause there, and I thought, well, in that little pause, I'm like, for those of anybody that might be listening to this, and like, you know, you you're not, you don't, you're not dealing with that area, man. If you have aging parents, it's the same thing, you know. Like, it's you have to plan. Like, things are going to happen, and if you don't think about this ahead of time, you wind up like, oh gosh, you know, what what are you gonna do? You know? yes. So it's like we all are probably are experiencing it. Uh, and we're going to be the aging parent at one point, you know what I mean? What can we do to help our kids prepare for them? And, you know, I'm going to need some help. I'm like, <laughs> I'm already having some problems. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have a question and this is specifically for you, Drew, because you have so many years in, and then I want you to chime in, Polly. Mm -hmm. Can you, in your experience, can you share for folks, one, what behaviors, what challenging behaviors have you seen in your experience serving adults? Um, have you seen the physical aggression, verbal aggression? What does that look like? We all have a picture in our mind of what that looks like for a youngster, but what does that look like for somebody in their 20s, 30s, 40s and beyond? Um, I, I've, I've seen it all. I've seen aggression. I've seen self-injurious behavior I, uh, where someone is blinding themselves in one eye. I worked with an individual who engaged in up to 300 self-injurious behaviors a day and had to wear protective equipment. I've seen pica. I've seen uh, cutting. Um, I, I've, I've seen individuals um, that were never taught how to masturbate <laughs> and was sexually frustrated um insert yes. hangers into their anus wire yes. hangers and and perforate it um you name it i've pretty yeah. much seen it um and it's when it comes especially when it comes to the aggression and the self-injury typically an adult that's still engaging in high degree or high frequency of self-injury is they're not going to look good to begin with i mean i've seen people with their jaws displaced and huge scar tissue on their foreheads. Um, we're talking about people that are 30, 40 years old who, who just have a long history of engaging in self-injurious behavior and as a function to get something or to get away from something in, in a lot of cases. And it's it's not pretty. Um, you, you can look at a, a five-year-old or a preschooler or something like that, and they engage in, and I'm doing air quotes here, <laughs> aggression, yeah. because to me, yes, they might be, you know, trying to slap box people, but 
a lot of people just kind of laugh that off and obviously you have to address it it's a lot different when you've got a six foot two 300 pound 40 year old man who's dual diagnosed and may <laughs> this is a true story and actually has boxing experience <laughs> for some reason <laughs> when they become aggressive it's it's a big difference and and staff have to be prepared in a different way than individuals that work with kids um the the degree of danger and safety issues goes up exponentially at that point. Absolutely. Okay. So I want to go back to something, but not quite now. I want to address that sexuality piece. So I just wrote myself a little note because I want to address that, deal with that. But what I also want to do is let's talk a little bit more about the staff preparation. And I want to talk about that because when you're in the schools, this was my experience, in the schools, we have teachers who have went through a teacher education program and we have teaching assistants. In Illinois, our teaching assistants are required to have at least 60 hours of college credit. Now, when I stepped into the adult system, the folks who primarily work closest with the individuals are required to have a GED or a high school diploma. And I'm not knocking that, not knocking that at all, but they are not required to have any specific training to address the behaviors that you are speaking to. And when we talk about waiver services, waiver services most of the time come with behavior support, not often direct behavior support, but more consultative, mm -hmm. meaning the behavior analyst um, or the mental health professional is going to be there to coach. So let's talk about what that creates when you have a workforce that is charged with so much. And in, I don't know about your state, but in Illinois, our direct service professionals that work in this system make anywhere between $10 to $15 an hour. Yeah. That's, a, that's not a lot of money. Not, not for the job they're being asked to do. Um, DSP job is one of, the, to me, is one of the most difficult things that you can do in this field. And and the reason why is this: you have an insane amount of responsibilities and skills that you have to acquire in order to be effective at your job. You have to be, you have to start to understand behavior at at least a basic level. You have to understand the functions, blah blah. blah. You have to be trained in, in how to administer medications. You have to maintain a safe environment and make sure it's clean and it's safe for everyone. You have to be able to transport people. Um, it, it's and then you have to be able to get along with your other direct sport <laughs> professionals, which That's is another right. skill in and of itself. It really um, is. It's 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 a very difficult job, and you're you're correct. I think the um, average pay rate in the nation is something like twelve dollars an hour for a DSP. Um, you can go in some cities. It's I think Tennessee, you get paid more average as a fast food worker than you do as a direct sport professional. And not knocking fast food workers. I'm just using that as kind of an example there. Yeah. Uh, you don't have to deal with people throwing things at you and verbally assaulting you and trying to punch you in the face when you deny them access to something yes. <laughs> like yes. you would. Well, some fast food workers have to deal with that. I've seen TikTok videos, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's not a daily occurrence. It's part of the expectations of the job. Um, yeah. I, I direct support professional is probably one of the hardest jobs I've ever done. And I have a lot of respect for individuals who do it. Absolutely. It's a lot of, I call it moving parts to it. Um, folks are charged with a lot. I mean, I remember doing it at 18 years old. What was big for me was transport and cooking for people. You know, those forgot are... about the cooking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, so, 
and you have to rem- the DSPs also have to remember that they're they are guests in the homes of the people that they work with. Um, I've seen people who treat it like their own house, and it just doesn't work out. You know, it's, they're actually guests in the residence home. So. So can you explain that? Because a lot of people may not understand this adult service system and what kind of community living looks like. You know, this is a new world and an unknown world to many of the folks who are listening right now. Can you share a little bit about that, Drew? Yeah, sure. So most residential facilities are group homes. Um, What they'll do is they'll have anywhere, and it varies by state, but what I've seen mostly is four to six individuals that have approximate the approximate same level of need or frequency and type of problem behavior, and they're kind of grouped together by age as well. You don't really see 12-year-olds in in homes with, you know, 25-year-olds. People frown upon that. Uh, But for the most part, it's four to six individuals um, with developmental disabilities, again, living in, in one home together, and they're typically supported by direct support professionals and the support around them, admin staff, things like that. It could be a one-to-one ratio for more difficult individuals, gauging high frequency, high magnitude problem behaviors, or it could be something like a one staff to three, one direct support professional to three um, individuals that they're providing services to. Um, and, and really what it should be <laughs> in residential services, it's not it's not glorified babysitting. You're there for treatment. You're there to help them gain skills and independence. Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about the importance of social skills and leisure skills, which I'm huge, could not agree with you more. Um, it, the job there is to make them more independent so they have more autonomy in their life. And the way that you do that is you reduce problem behaviors and you increase skills. Um, that and you, There's a couple of other things you can do there, but those are the two main ones. That should be the purpose of residential facilities. And obviously keeping them as safe as possible. If you can't keep people safe, this is one of the man- mantras that um, a guy that I worked with down in down in Florida, he always said, doesn't matter if you have the best behavior service plan in the world, blah, blah, blah. If you don't keep them safe as the first thing, none of it matters. So yeah, keeping absolutely. them safe and healthy is, is hugely important as well. Absolutely. Safety first. My mantra, safety first. So I want to thank you for that, Drew. And I want to go back to uh, sexuality, social and leisure. But I wanted you to chime in, Polly, um, just speaking to, you know, what we have here is a workforce of mostly committed people who don't get a lot of reinforcement. The pay is low. Um, They're often working long hours, you know, and they're working within a system often that has a, a high turnover. You know, so it's people usually stay, people don't usually stay a DSP um, across their entire career. Typically, it's people who are a DSP for a period of time and then they're moving on when a better position comes along. So you can imagine, you can imagine the impact on the outcomes for those we serve when the workforce is made up a lot of times of people who are largely underpaid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, what are your thoughts on how to put systems in place to motivate staff? Well, first of all, it drives me friggin' nuts. I would use the other F word, um, Mm -hmm. but I want to be appropriate. Uh, It really does what really shows um, it devalues the consumer, right? The people, because we're, I mean, who would, 
think about your own child. Would you want somebody who had no skills working with your child in a, no. in, in your, if your child uh, as an adult um, was lacking skills and needed support, you want to have an unskilled worker working directly and well-meaning, right? These people are getting in there because they're well-intentioned and they're doing the best they can based on their own history, their own upbringing, right? And so unfortunately, we know a little bit about the signs of human behavior. Sometimes well-intended people can inadvertently do the wrong thing. Uh, And so it ends up hurting the consumer, but it's also hurting them because certainly while they're leaving because they're unhappy, they're leaving because they're not producing successful outcomes They're leaving because they're being managed poorly and they they're not being provided the the knowledge and the skills to be successful and produce naturally recurring positive reinforcement. They're leaving because certainly they're being underpaid. And so it really devalues uh, them as well um, as as professionals. And so. Um, I think that, you know, if we look at the cost of that, like what is the cost for turnover? Yes. What's it cost when we don't equip? I know that some of the research I've read, it's about 20% of, the, you know, somebody's salary, right? So what does that add up to? What would happen if we invested in them more and, uh, you know, uh, so they could be successful and supported them more and maybe paid them a little bit more, right? Yes. And what they're making so they could sustain there. And then what's what's the cost of having individuals that, you know, consistently uh, need support that we're not fostering some level of independence. What does that cost? Um, so I think there are, you know, because I think it feels like the state or the, these group home agencies that are private, right? They're looking at the bottom line. And so, um, you know, I would like to think that everybody's doing it because they're altruistic and that might've been why they get into it, but, you know, they do have to have, you know, some sort of margin if it's private to stay open. And so I think that, if you know they understood systems approach, right? If they understand organizational behavior management yes. for creating a good environment that sustained staff performance, so they could you know bring out the best in the staff. In other words, so they can bring out the best in the uh, the consumer in there, the individual. Man, everybody would be a win win for everybody. A win for the consumer. A win for the the group home employee. Yes. A win for the management. A win for the the, the leadership and the owners. Um, they just don't know what they don't know. And they're operating on that immediate, like, this is going to cost me money. No, we can't do that. And it's like, man, invest in your future by learning a little bit of organizational behavior management, equip your staff with the knowledge and skills that they need to be successful, to prevent behavior issues, right? By creating an environment that they, they want to be right by equipping the the consumer with the knowledge and skills based on where they're at and a little bit more and a little bit more right understand how to leverage the the uh the use of positive reinforcement understand how to manage behavior when they get upset and they get escalated and all of these things right how can you communicate with them in a way that maximizes relationships and uh you know that makes it so the consumer doesn't want to get pissed off at them and make their job harder and all these different things right so they need to be equipped with the tools so um you know i think a good system like that would really change things around and it would align with my personal values i don't want to see group homes like that or residential homes like that and i think a lot of people in there don't want to see it as well right i've gone into cultures and i spent most of my career in schools and i've seen good people engaging in bad behavior because that's just the way we do things around here like doing a lot of yelling and coercion and because they're seeing the immediate outcomes of their behavior and they think this is the way you got to do business this is the way and there's the one or the two that are trying to be nice and trying to be compassionate trying to do the right thing but it won't sustain that culture because the culture takes over and starts to feel like you're freaking crazy like what am i yes. you know, loony bin you know like there's nobody nice around here doing nice things i've seen 
people like cry when I said, well, thanks so much the way you were treating the yes. kids. And then like, they literally cried because, they, you know, it's just unusual. But anyways, even the other people that were engaging in those coercive behaviors, they're still good people most of the time. They just don't know better. And this is why I'm so passionate about disseminating the science and helping people understand that if you, you can really produce some valued outcomes for yourself and other people, you know, in a way that is just positive in nature. So that's, love that's my that. soapbox. I love it. You know what I'm feeling really blessed right now because Polly Gavoni is speaking at the 2023, um, ABA conference here in Illinois for Elava, and I am so grateful and appreciative that our membership and and the folks in Illinois get to come in to contact with your brilliance. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, well, thank you, man. I'm excited to speak there. Uh, yes. I'm doing it with Anika, right? That's the you, one that's next yes, month. Yes, you yep. are. That is yep. the one that is next month, and you will be sharing that space with Miss Anika, who is also brilliant. I'm very grateful that the two of you will be at Alaba this year. Oh, well, thank you. I can't yes. wait. Yes. So more of this, one, one thing that you just touched on, Polly, and I don't, I think people miss it when it comes to the adult service system, is that the systems piece. And a lot of the work in programming is, is front-facing as it should be, you know, with an eye on the consumer. So mm -hmm. this is it. What you just spoke to people miss is mm -hmm. that when you are working in a system, you have to attend to all parts of it. So mm -hmm. if you're just attending to the consumer without attending to the middle level management without attending to frontline, that's not going to produce the outcomes you want for the consumer. So there does need to be some time and attention given to supporting, nurturing, developing, especially those who work closest to the consumer. And that will, as you so beautifully put it, lead to more positive outcomes for those mm -hmm. that we serve. From my perspective, um, the system is the consumer when we go in this place because the system is going it's producing whatever's being produced that's a result of the system right yeah um and so we have to look at if we look at the system as an organism and we think about you know the, in systems talk there's like the environment and there's inputs uh and then you know you get the, the performance in the middle of the process and everything and we get outputs on the other side it's really it's still the four-term contingency right the 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 environment are all these influencers the inputs are these antecedents but they're like the training and the resources the money that's being put into this you know etc the education where we're getting recruiting the people from and who's developing those people right these are all inputs and then you have the behavior of the performers in there and they're they're behaving a certain way it's producing this output this outcome is happening and the outcome is like, hey, are the consumers like that's the data, right? That data is like, are they performing better? Are they reaching their goals? Are we fostering independence? You know, are we getting a reduction in behavior issues? All these pieces of the puzzle. And that should be fed back into the organization, right? And that's either reinforcing our current behavior or we need to make adjustments, right? So when you look at it from that way, we don't blame the you don't blame the worker, right? Yes. Um, blame is nowhere to be. We have to we have to look at a system and make the adjustments that's going to get the best, bring out the best in those employees. So again, they can bring out the best in the consumers. And that's the data point. That's the result we should be looking at to drive our performance in the organization.
conversation. Love it. Y'all, Polly Gavoni is on here dropping gems. So I hope people <laughs> are listening and taking notes because he is dropping some serious gems. So thank you. And Drew, let me let me get back to you. I said I wanted to come back to sexuality, social skills, and leisure skills. So let's start with social and leisure. Yeah. When when I talk about that, I don't think people know how important those skills are to be developed in the adult system. Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, social skills to me are are, and I'll get to leisure skills. Leisure skills can be kind of dovetailed together with social skills, but social skills to me, I've always thought that the more high quality personal relationships that individuals have the less likely they are to engage in what we would consider crisis behavior or problem behavior and this doesn't this just this goes for every human um you know if you if if i'm by myself and i have no support system around me and something bad happens in my personal life i'm going to take it a lot harder because i don't have a support system around me i don't have a lot of relationships that i can fall back on it's the same for individuals with developmental disabilities um they're still human there's a, there's a stigma that's attached to individuals and we're going to talk about sexuality later i'm yeah. sure stigma yeah. that's attached to individuals with developmental disabilities especially adults that they don't have the same responses that the rest of us are typically developing people do and that's just bullcrap yeah. um they want friendships they need high quality interpersonal relationships uh so when at my facilities, we always taught social skills, um, how to direct, you know, how to start a conversation appropriately, how to how to continue a conversation so you're not freaking people out by repeating things, how to remove yourself from a conversation in a way that's socially acceptable, a whole but personal space. All of these are social skills. Um, so important to me, leisure skills are even more important <laughs> yes. because if you don't know how to fill up your downtime, you're going to fall back onto probably problem behavior. I have personally, I have a ton of hobbies i have so many hobbies that i don't have enough time to do all the things that i want right yeah. but i have seen uh, i've gone in and done some consulting some residential group home consulting not behavior analysis stuff i was hired to look at what the staff were doing and the systems there and i would go in and they would teach the individuals one to how, how to play uno and that was the only leisure skill these guys would have and they that was the only choice they had to fill up their downtime um i'm a big proponent proponent of teaching a wide variety of leisure skills to people so that they learn how to wait and they can do something while they're waiting you tell someone just to wait in line you you'll go crazy we do it all the time right <laughs> if we're waiting in line and, and you know gosh i'm standing in line at the movie theater and i've got nothing to do well look at everybody now they're on their phones yes, right they have true. something to fill their time they know how to use that that is a leisure skill to fill yes. up their time um you take away their phones you might have people getting into arguments with people whatever it might be some that's kind of right. weird behavior but yeah so leisure skills to me that's why it's important in the adult uh, services world um, absolutely yeah. absolutely and thank you for saying it loud enough so the people in the back can hear a hundred percent you know because i don't think again that people recognize how important leisure and social skills are for adult living and adult living within the context of, of a community or in a group home, we call it community integrated living arrangements here in mm -hmm. Illinois. You know, and I wonder if, if folks knew, if our younger families knew what it what it's like to live or what life would be like in, in the adult system, if they would not prioritize differently, you know. Because it's functional. 
those yes. are functional skills. Functional, yes. Yeah, they help you. They they increase the quality of your life. Um, learning the being able to recite the first sixteen presidents might be great, look good academically, but my God, it really doesn't matter when you're twenty five years old living in a group home if you don't have leisure and social skills. Those are more important. Absolutely. Thank you for saying that. They really those functional leisure and social skills make all the difference for quality of life. Yeah. Quality yeah. of life. Considering there is so much downtime within the adult service system. There's a lot of waiting, a lot of sitting. But if somebody could, you know, they could pull out a puzzle and do yeah. a puzzle. They could enjoy listening to music. Those yep. things change the quality of one's life. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, See, that one resonates with me. I can't I, imagine not having music. That simple thing, you know, <laughs> sit and do it. My God, man. Mm -hmm. You know. Yeah, you got to be careful, though, because I've seen the trap. It's like, oh, what's he do for his leisure time? Oh, he watches TV. And I'll walk in, and he's in the recliner, and he's not even looking at the TV. The TV's on. Uh, <laughs> that's not a leisure skill. That's right. right? That is not. <laughs> he's, he's not commenting on the episode of Seinfeld or whatever it is. If he is, then, yeah, he's watching it. But yeah. Absolutely. Point. So thank you so much for sharing that. And then as we have a few minutes left, what I want to do is really delve into the conversation of sexuality. Sexuality is a part of adult life. Yeah. And you said it earlier, we, we tend to look at our folks with developmental disabilities as asexual, and that's unfair. And more than unfair, it's unsafe. Yeah, It's unsafe. So what have been some of your experiences, Drew, around serving adults with developmental disabilities and sexuality you know it's 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 always a little touchy when you talk about this kind of stuff um no pun intended, one, no pun intended. i know as soon as it came out of my mouth i'm like paulie's gonna say something he's gonna say something <laughs> um especially when you have to um have dsps and, and and teach them get them in the mindset that um sexuality is part of the human condition and it doesn't matter if you have a developmental disability or not uh, you can't treat them as asexual they have needs they have urges um when it came to the kind of stuff i had to do is with with dealing with sexuality i actually uh, had to uh, teach an individual how to masturbate uh male obviously um because he couldn't and he was really injuring himself while he tried to yes. come to completion um and most people when i when i would tell them the story they're like that's just gross that's blah 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 and it really makes me mad because it's like hey man it's not gross it's necessary it's yes. necessary to do this otherwise he was going to hurt himself and i, I mentioned earlier you know i had someone that, uh, maybe i didn't mention it uh insert wire hangers in their yeah, anus did, and yeah. perforate their anus because they didn't know the appropriate way to do things and it's uh, it's a danger and when you speak to when you said it's dangerous if people don't recognize their sexuality that's just one example um another example could be um they don't know the boundaries of what's socially appropriate or sexually mm -hmm. socially appropriate to do sexually so they might engage in appropriate I, dealt with this in california they know how to masturbate they don't know when and where to do it so yes. fine in your room buddy not good on the bus right that's right that's <laughs> so you, right. you have to address this kind of stuff in adult residential or adult services i well so i want to make a distinction too what i have seen is 
especially when it comes to masturbation, um, ideally we have people directing individuals to a private room because that's a private behavior. But what I have seen too often is don't do that. Stop. No, you can't do that. And that creates a whole host of other problems. Yeah, they absolutely can. They just need to know when and where. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So I appreciate that distinction. And then the other part is, uh, um, this goes on to social skills too, but, you know, companionship, sexual companionship, individuals of own disabilities, uh, going on dates, having appropriate, having something that society would uh, agrees is appropriate sexual relationship. Um, If you've never been taught about it. How are you going to know what to do? You're going to get into trouble, you you know, consent and assent and all of that. If you don't address that, you're going to create a bunch of problems. So, yeah, I don't think enough people in residential services do it. Um, It's uncomfortable, especially for individuals that might just be new to the field, DSPs, especially, you know, 18 years old. They're like they're barely functioning sexual adults anyway. (laughs) uh, Yeah, it's, it's difficult to deal with, but it definitely has to be addressed. Absolutely. You know, in this short time, we have covered so much. And again, my hope is that this conversation has created more access and awareness around adult service and what we can do right here today, now, to lead those children that we're serving um, with access to a better experience in their adult in their adult life yeah so i i hope we have fulfilled on that intention this is what i always do um one i want to invite you polly or drew to share anything you want to share in the last few minutes that we have either polly oh okay uh well i you know here this is going to sound uh self-serving um you know we we were on the podcast and we're dropping stuff right so one of the things that we do at pcma is that we do we a lot of stuff that we're talking about fundamentally is that we teach people and i'm proud of this again i could i could have went to work at any company we teach people the practical application of the signs of human behavior for creating a positive environment uh, for how to teach skills how to positively reinforce them how to prevent behavior issues and equip people with skills and how to maximize relationships. And so, you know, whether you come to us or you go somewhere else and learn the science of human behavior, do do it. It should be fundamental to everything that's going on in these organizations. I would say that, you know, if you have crisis management systems in these organizations and they're not fundamentally rooted in the science of human behavior and your behavior analyst, you might want to think twice about those things. Uh, you know, because we know that we have to do things that are empirically based and things that are going to help not inadvertently hurt people. So it's a little self-serving for PCM, but I, you know, PCMA, but I do believe in what we do. So, uh, you know, check our stuff out. Yeah. Thank you, Polly. Um, I'm incredibly passionate about adult services. Um, I started, in, like I said, 1998 with adults, and I've worked in a variety of settings. I've worked with young kids, and I've worked in schools and blah, blah. I always go back to the adults. Um, I, personally, I don't know why, but I get a lot of enjoyment out of working with individuals that are adults that are very difficult. Um, that being said, if anybody's out there listening and they are in charge of orientation or training of new staff or onboarding, 
take a good hard look and make sure that you are getting your staff the, the skills they need to be, be successful because you cannot have meaningful behavior change out of the people, your residents, if you don't change the behavior of the staff. The caregiver's behavior has to change before these, the resident's behavior does. Um, so make sure you, you give them the skills and the motivation yes. to, uh, to do that. Oh, this is wonderful. So this is what I need to do now is thank you both for so generously. You shared generously today and I greatly appreciate that. I have one more question. It's the question that I ask after every episode. Gentlemen, this is evolving ABA. Evolving ABA, whatever that means to you. But I wanna know from both of you, how do you see the fields evolving in the next decade, two decades? I'll start with you, Drew. And you can speak to adult Ooh. services. Gosh, I hope it does change. There are different changes to it. <laughs> what I hope happens or what I think is going to happen. Um, no, when it comes to ABA, I've seen in the last 15 years the advent of ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, um, this idea that not everything has to be done in such a lab-like environment. Um, I hope it continues on that route. The 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 advent of understanding of trauma-informed care, doing it from behavioral uh, perspective is something I think is very important and hope would ABA will evolve too. Um, yeah, that's, that's where I think it's going to go and I hope it goes. You're going to see more stuff like ACT. You're going to see more uh, people informed about trauma uh, and treating it not as a mentalism, but treating it as something that you can operationally define, break it down to behaviors. That is what I hope happens. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I, and I, would, I would double down on that. That's where I hope it goes as well. I do see it moving in that direction. And you see, you are a prime example of that, that we're beginning to open up and uh, look at, you know, uh, the science is the science, you know, yes. that's it. You know, it's about how we approach it and uh, how we share it with others and we have to remember that, especially when we're working with individuals, like they're people. And we, we uh, you've heard me say this before. I, I think people get this thing I call behavioral myopia. And they're so, you know, when the behavior analysts go in, they work, they're just looking at the, the learner and they're not looking at the other people as part of the environment. They're also learners, you know, when it comes to the science of human behavior. And so we have to do a better job disseminating. We have to do a better job working with other fields. And hey, they've had their successes too. And if we put a lens on that, we can certainly, you know, probably explain it behaviorally. So let's embrace those people and, uh, you know, to grow the science because the science should be everywhere. It's not because we haven't done a great job disseminating, or we haven't historically, but in disseminating meaning getting people to adopt the science, right? Not just sharing it, but getting people to adopt the principles of the science. And so uh, I do think it's moving in that in that direction. I'm happy to see that. And I think we need to keep moving that direction, but in a way that still stays pure to the science. Right. So we don't want to, you know, I think we, we need to translate the science. Right. Um, but we still need to adhere to the principles of it. Holly Gavoni, Drew Carter, thank you beyond words.